Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. We are live. It's May 28th, 2022, after a couple of false starts this morning. I'm, as always, in San Francisco. I've got two of my most favorite uh, recent guests on the show talking about something which uh, is very close to many of our hearts. Uh, a couple of years ago, Kerry Arsenault was on the show uh, talking about her remarkable, not so new book now, Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains about the crisis in America and in, in the deindustrializing uh, parts of America. And then last year, we had uh, the environmentalist Bathsheba Dumuth on the show, who has an, another remarkable book, Floating Coasts and Environmental History of the Bering Strait. Both books are very unusual, original, beautifully written, and I think both quite significant critical successes. So I was particularly intrigued when I heard that um, Kerry and uh, Bathsheba are actually working together on a new initiative uh, at Brown University called The Studio. Um, it's an initiative about storytelling, storytelling about the environment. They are the, uh, the co-founders uh, of this um, storytelling unit at Brown University, and they're both joining me today from the East Coast. Welcome, both of you. Uh, Kerry, perhaps we'll, we'll start with you since you begin with A. Um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about this initiative. How did it begin at Brown University and what are you and Bathsheba trying to do? Well, I can say how it began with in, in me and then we can, I can hand the baton to Bathsheba and then we can tell it how, how we came together on it. But as a longtime book critic, I, I, had kept, I kept seeing books coming through my mailbox that um, were full of great information, but uh, unmemorable in the way that they were giving me this information. It was, in for other me, words, it was boring, really hard. <laughs> boring, right? Well, well, I should say that, I mean, for researching for my own book, I, I had to reference a lot of these books, right? But but I'm, I'm not good at remembering data. I don't think a lot of people are for memorizing data or memorizing dates. And it was really hard for me to get hold of, even though the information in them was compelling and fascinating and necessary and informative. Um, and, and, and then as a book critic, I started getting those same books. And as a Ryan book editor too, I saw more and more of these same kind of books that were coming through about, you know, polar bears or seals or trees or and they and they were doing very similar things and that they were just delivering a lot of information to me but not telling stories and to me um stories are what stick in your memory and in your heart and so i i kept trying to find books that would satisfy both of those things the data and the story together and i kept finding it very difficult um, and started having conversations with Bathsheba about this. So let's hand the baton over to Bathsheba. She's talking to me from Rhode Island near Brown University. Um, how did you get, how did you convince the people at Brown to fund and, um, and organize your, your, your storytelling unit? Because it's a wonderful idea. Did it take a lot of arm wrestling, Bathsheba? 
You know, it actually didn't take a lot of arm wrestling, which I'm very pleased about. Um, I think when I came to my colleagues at the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society, which is the kind of environmental studies hub on campus, and talked about this as a need, it was one that our director, Dove Sachs, recognized right away, um, understood it as something that could really help IBIS, the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society, help the academics that work here and then also kind of around the world get these messages that are really important into audiences hands um, and kind of outside of the academic bubble so i found it to be quite supportive here um, and um, i'm really glad about that i think it is a sign of recognition on the part of the academy that it's not just the generating of knowledge that's important it's also making it accessible um, to communities who need to put it into practice. Uh, Beth Jibby, you, you are an academic. Kerry is a, uh, more of a, a popular writer. Um, <laughs> do you think your, your storytelling unit is designed mostly for academics who probably more than professional writers struggle with the telling of stories? So our hope with our kind of first generation of these studio writing courses is to work specifically with academics. Um, because whether you're working in the sciences or the humanities, training specifically in writing and in storytelling is not usually part of how it is that we train PhD students. Um, but I think in the longer term, we're actually hoping to be able to branch this out to kind of use the courses as a place for dialogue between people who think of themselves more as professional writers, people who are journalists or literary nonfiction writers, and academics to have it also have kind of a skill sharing component since academics are trained in things that can be really useful to telling the environmental stories, the kind of research component of it, understanding the technical literature, finding your way through the databases, those kinds of skills, I think are also things that we can share. Um, and also to make these tools widely available to people in frontline communities or other places who might want you know, more access to how to write for newspapers or get the experience of their hometowns or other local spaces into the into the news. Carrie, it's easy to make fun of academics who write often in an incredibly boring, insular way. That's what they seem to be required to have to get their tenured jobs. In terms of your storytelling unit, what would you be trying to do with non-academics, with non with more traditional non-fiction writers like yourself, how do you think they need to improve their skills when it comes to writing about the environment? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can say from experience that, I, like what Bathsheba said, I could have really used some help in, in sort of the research end of things and and accessing, you know, access was a real, a real problem for me, not being in academia, not being associated with an organization or university. So access was one point, um, learning how to use those journals and all that research, how to track it, how to cite it, how to do it. I mean, that's something they don't teach you. You know, I got my MFA at the new school and they don't, they don't teach you that either. They, they work on your writing. So And, and we, I think it's our idea. And I'm, I'm glad Bathsheba also spoke about, you know, the communities and that, that was, a, that's a really big thing that, that I felt was missing in some of um, these, these more academic oriented books is that they weren't taking in consideration, um, not as sort of 
sort of carefully or thoughtfully the communities that they were writing about. That's not to say all of them, but, but it was, if you're writing about a community, I think that community should have sort of access or, or be able to know what you're writing about. And, and so it's our idea to help these academics reach broader audiences so that the people they're writing about will want to read their books too. You have something called The Course. I know it's going to start in 2023. Is this just for people at Brown or can anyone enroll? Carrie. Oh, and, and anyone can, can apply. Um, we are probably going to work on the course itself this summer, over the summer, um, but anyone from around the world. And it's our, our idea to have a course in... 2023 in Providence, and then the following January, do a remote option for those people who can't get here or or otherwise can't attend in person. Let's move to uh, uh, Bathsheba. Uh, Bathsheba, your your book is incredibly original. You sort of weave environmental history, archaeology, culture, sociology. Can that be taught? I think so. Um, I think part of what the studio can do is actually open up space within academic disciplines to talk about how it is that things like how a book is organized, right? How I do that weaving back and forth between these disciplines is not separate from making an academic argument. And there's research and the same kinds of skills that we're, we're taught to really hone and value within the academy. Um, I think for the graduate students that I work with now and for undergrads and postdocs, a lot of them expressed to me frustration that there just simply isn't emphasis in their programs on the, the kind of practicalities of writing, the skills of doing it, finding good examples, um, learning how to read other authors to kind of see what writing speaks to you and why it does that. That, that kind of toolkit is one that I think many academics um, don't have in their formal training. And some folks come to it, you know, later in their careers and really are invigorated by kind of bringing those tools in. Um, but I also think there's a whole generation of particularly environment focused scholars who are, you know, in graduate school or before tenure who are really, you know, don't want to wait, right? They see the kind of urgency of being able to communicate widely um, and accessibly and want those skills now. There are certain subjects and the environment comes to mind, um, certainly race and identity, perhaps also economics, where certain people tend to interpret everything in that context. So everything associated with society or mental health or inequality or unhappiness or whatever it is, is connected, say, for example, with race or with capitalism or with the environment have you had to set limitations around the environment because that's a, a broad subject the reason i bring that up i saw one of your uh teachers in 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 the storytelling unit is jessica bruder who's been on the show wonderful book of course nomad land never really occurred to me that this is a traditional environmental book although i can see how it could be interpreted as one yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one um, that, I mean, it comes up all the time when Carrie and I are talking about how to approach this. Um, and I think in the, the list of authors that we're bringing into the course, um, there's two things going on. One are people who are writing very, 
environment and doing so well, right? And doing so in this way that's able to really engage readers. But we're also bringing in folks, you know, fiction writers and people like Jessica Bruder who aren't necessarily writing about the environment head on, but are writing kind of forceful stories about the American condition um, in the case of Nomadland, an ec sort of economic story in ways that have been so compelling that millions of people have read her book. Um, so, you know, kind of, you, you can come at the environment explicitly or you can come at it sort of slant, but um, the idea is to really expose folks in the course to people who have figured out how to tell hard stories that require um, kind of mastery of fact, but also scene and plot and character and all those kinds of um, more literary tools in order to communicate it. Okay, would, I see you not nodding in the background. Uh, your book, Milltown, again, it's not probably in a little bit like a Bruder's Nomadland. It's not formally an environmental book, although it, it is about the environment. Do you think, Carrie, it's possible to be a serious nonfiction writer these days and not write about the environment? I feel like, I don't know about the word serious, but um, I well, think credible, that most- credible. Yeah, yeah, I think most stories right now are are somehow connected to the environment. So let's take Just Bruders for a second. And I think we say this on our website too. It's like, how can you actually right now, this today, divide social and environmental? It's just really not possible. The, the problems that we're having on our planet, um, whether it's economic or, or socially or culturally, a lot of them are derived from the environmental problems that we're having, or they create environmental problems. So there's that synchronicity back and forth. So, so it's not to say that everybody has to write about the environment, like Bathsheba said, directly. It doesn't have to center like the disaster or center the environment, but but the things that are it, it's orbiting around the environment. Like another book we have on our list is. Um, uh, and a person that's probably going to appear is Lee Newman, who just wrote a book of short stories about um, that take place in Alaska. And she's not writing about the environment, but in the background, you know, there's things that are like melting and as well as people are melting. And there's, you know, there, there are things that are happening in the environment that are forcing these people to either move or stay in Alaska. You know what I mean? Uh, we, um, Carrie, we had Hannah Tester on the show a couple of years ago, young environmental activist as an interesting book, Taking on the Plastics Crisis. Are you seeing a, a sharp demographic shift in, in the passion to write about the environment, in the way in which people think about the environment? Um, do you expect to have, in other words, a lot of young people on your courses? I, what, I, what I have seen, and I don't know if I'm just imagining this, but it seems like there's a lot of women um, doing this work right now in writing in this way and and part of the reason that Bathsheba and I I think developed this course too is not just that we were seeking these kind of stories but we saw people attempting to write them and we saw them kind of emerging but not knowing where to put these kind of stories right like you know publishers want to want to place them on a bookshelf somewhere and so writers are we're struggling to try to find where to put them and and so you know I I hope I hope I hope young authors, I hope old authors like myself, I hope, <laughs> I hope men and women and everybody in between uh, will come to our, our course and, and support this kind of work. I, I don't know if I've necessarily seen young 
writers that might be something Bathsheba could speak to. I haven't yeah, seen I mean, a lot ba- of books. Bathsheba, should, you, should we or should you be concerned about preaching to the converted at a an elite university like Brown? I assume that 99.9% of the students are quote-unquote concerned about the environment. To reach people who are more skeptical, who might tip the balance in terms of public policy, do we need to broaden our reading net? Yeah, exactly. I think um, one of the reasons that undergraduate students, um, I'm actually teaching kind of a semester long version of this intensive workshop for undergraduates with my colleague Elizabeth Rush, um, who's also kind of a writer in this um, environmental storytelling genre. Um, and it actually comes out of undergraduate demand here at Brown because of the recognition on the part of students being trained, you know, here at a elite Ivy League institution that they need to be able to reach and speak to and understand and work with communities that are not centered entirely um, within our walls. Um, and kind of thinking about these tools as a way to uh, think through the major political challenges of environmental change that are you know, they're facing all of us in this room virtually, but they're certainly facing folks who are in their late teens and 20s very acutely. um, And these students really know that. So um, it is, I think, kind of one of my hopes that part of what the course will do um, and and kind of offer is a way to get information and um, a set of discussions about the environment that tends to actually only happen in elite spaces into forms and fora. Um, that are not quite so um, isolated and insulated. Uh, Can I Carrie, say something, uh, Andrew? Sorry, I, I yeah, just want to add, Terry. Um, yeah. Your book, Milltown, is about what remains right. of certain industrial towns in the northeastern part of America, which is not a, a lot. How can you get the people of Milltown to be concerned about the environment? What kind of books would reach them, do you think? Um, Milltown did. Um, <laughs> so uh, what I was going to say, and it, and it goes right into what Bathsheba was saying, you know, um, I, I congratulate Brown too for going outside their walls to let me come there. I don't have a PhD. I don't even, you know, I, I've taught, I've taught some writing courses, but nothing, you know, n- nothing officially or, or full time or anything. And I think that's partly due to Bathsheba's insistence that, you know, we need to reach out into spheres of, of, of differing um, uh, points of view. And, and I know Milltown has, has reached people in Milltowns because I consistently and constantly hear from them daily, um, emailing me, um, asking me to come to their you know, group of five book group or their libraries. And I go because this book, I feel like is is not it's not um, it's not giving them voice. It's listening to their voices, and I think that's what the kind of book that people in these communities need to read in order not need to read, but they want to read it and they want to see themselves in books more. And yeah. Carrie, we had Erin um, Brockovich on the show a couple of years ago. She has a new book out, Superman's Not Coming, Our National Water Crisis and What We the People Can Do About It. You're a very political person. Sometimes these books 
um, read as if people don't really have to do anything. But Brokovich reminds everyone that their environmental fate is in their own hands. How yeah. central is politics in your studio? How central would you like political action to be? Well, I don't, I don't feel like we'll be teaching anything political, but um, I think it will naturally come up and, as part of the conversation. And I'm, I'm there to help bring that forward if people want to. I mean, I wouldn't call myself an activist either. If anybody wants to, they can. But um, I think we're going to do less book. Like Aaron, Aaron Brockovich's books are great. And I, I think you hit spot on what she does is she tells people that this is, it's up to you to make the change, right? There's no Superman coming, actually, even though her book is named that. Um, but I, sorry, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> well, let's move over to uh, Bathsheba. Uh, Bathsheba, <laughs> in terms of, of politics, we also had. Uh, Rowan Hooper on the show, British science journalist. He has an interesting new book out, How to Save the World for Just a Trillion Dollars, The 10 Biggest Problems We Can Actually Fix. Um, and he writes, many of these problems are, of course, environmental, not all of them, but many. Um, when it comes to writing well, how important is the ability to write well in terms of policy, in terms of getting concrete things done? It's all very well writing, you know, beautiful books about trees, like Kinari Webb, who was on the show, uh, The Guardian of Trees. But policy is much harder to write stories, isn't it? I think it can be. Um, but I think there's also, when you're thinking about something as multifaceted and as large as an environmental issue like climate change, the ability to tell stories that let people think about it in new ways at a variety of levels is really important. So one of those might just be for some kinds of audiences, understanding that it really is something that is going to be a part of their lives, right? Mm. And then for a different person, it might be a book that is very much more geared toward a set of policy maneuvers um, and things that people feel like they can do concretely or that policymakers can actually engage in. So I don't think there's one, one way to kind of do this, right? It's, it's a problem that has many audiences. Um, and the question is, you know, how do you start reaching as many of them as possible? Um, and I also think that in the case of the environment, at least if you're writing in the United States, that simply telling a story that is um, able to address with factual accuracy how it is that climate change has become a problem and what it is that we need to do in order to not make it a worse problem very, very quickly becomes political, right? And it's a, it's a sort of fraught ground for that exact reason, which makes it very interesting to write about and puts a lot of, um, you know, drama and importance into whether or not you're writing fiction or nonfiction about it, frankly, um, just kind of because people care really deeply about what they imagine the future to be. That's what a lot of these stories are about. You have a, a Twitter page, of course, the Environmental Storytelling Studio at Tess Brown. Um, is your studio just in the business of teaching people to tell textual stories or do you want them to also get into the business of audio stories and even video stories, to, uh, Bathsheba? I think in, the, in this kind of first trial year that we're starting, we're focusing on textual projects, but I don't see a horizon on that in the long term, right? And I think, 
if you look at the um, incredible popularity, both of podcasting and also of, you know, YouTube channels and other kinds of ways of delivering information, those are all narratives, right? There, there are ways of telling stories to people um, and that, you know, we, we wouldn't want to cut those folks off. Um, we will need to bring in people who are more experts because I at least am not an audio <laughs> storytelling art um, expert. I don't have a lot of those skills. Um, but I think many of the kind of backbone principles of what makes a story compelling, it makes it something that people remember that they come back to um, kind of exist across all of these genres. Carrie, um, about the issue of time, uh, I had uh, the, the Australian, Anglo-Australian philosopher Roman Krisnarich on the show recently. He has a book out about how to be a good ancestor. Do you think that rethinking time is necessary if we're to tell stories about the environment effectively? You know, I, I think that's something both Bathsheba and I are thinking about and we questioned or interrogated in our book was the whole idea of history itself, um, how to write about history so that we can be good ancestors, um, maybe, you know, how to memorialize things, how to, how to take what has happened and apply it to the future or to see what's happening in the future. You know, I think, I think history and which is related to time obviously is really one of the most important aspects of the things I'm thinking about and the things that uh, I'll be teaching, I think. What about telling people stuff they really don't want to hear? Like, uh, we had a, a Norwegian economist on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about why we simply can't afford to have as many kids. Can stories do a better job in telling people what they don't want to hear, Carrie? I think that's a tricky question. I don't know. I don't know if I don't, I don't feel like stories are the, the the way I teach stories are the way I want these stories to come out. They're not to tell people to do anything, but, or I think they're rather to ask more questions and to give answers, mm. right? Um, or, and, and as far as teaching and, and talking to students, I think what we're there to do is to also give permission to academics to write in this way, to write stories that instead of um, just the ways that they've been trained to do. Uh, so yeah, I think ask questions rather than giving answers is where I'm coming from. You guys have a list of, of books that you're advising, the environmentary storytelling um, shelf, I guess, uh, about 15 books. Are there particular books, Kerry, that you would recommend people to read to understand the art or perhaps the science of storytelling in terms of the environment? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say the first one on our list is one I'm reading right now, The Mermaid of Black Conch. It's Monique Ruffy and it's an incredible book. It's a, it, it takes place in, she's a Trinidadian writer and it takes place, basically a mermaid is caught by these fishermen. And uh, it's, it's almost like this feminist retelling of Old Man in the Sea when they, they kind of land the mermaid and they hang her up to like, you know, in this American man and his son, they wanna bring her to America and sell her and all this stuff. But, and so it, it, it has a lot about, you know, how we treat species for one thing and um, 
a lot about the relationships between men and women. So there's the social, the environmental, you know, thing, but it ends up being a love story in the end. So it has, to me, this book folds everything inside environment and social in it, in really what feels like almost a fable. And it's, it's just beautifully written and, and I can't, I can't recommend it enough. Um, that to me is like the epitome of something, not necessarily that an academic is going to write a, a book about a mermaid, but I think that them reading a book like this can give them permission to go a little bit further towards the edges of that. Uh, and Bathsheba, uh, final recommendation or two of books that you would encourage people to read if they're going to apply to your storytelling unit, models of books that you think do a good job telling stories about the environment? Yeah, I have two, one of which is not specifically about the environment, but I think as a model, particularly for academics who are looking to kind of reach a bigger audience, um, the Taya Miles book, All That She Carried, does this extremely well. Um, and it's a book that is making very important arguments that people who are deeply versed in her academic field are like, aha, I see what you're doing here. But it also does it in a way that makes the reader participant in understanding what that is. It's a, it's this kind of this journey that she takes you on. Um, and it's an incredibly emotional journey. And to me, learning how to actually sort of mobilize feeling in a text is one of the things that's really kind of drilled out of academic writers in our formal PhD training. And that many authors are actually looking for ways to bring back in and that Miles does that, I think, exceptionally well. Um, I think, um, if you're just sort of looking for somebody who writes often very specifically about the environment, but in ways that does that work of asking questions as much as providing answers that Carrie was just referring to, that it's hard to go wrong with Barry Lopez's essays. Um, he has a new collection coming out, his last collection, um, he passed away uh, a little over a year ago called um, Embrace Fearlessly the Burning World, which is sort of his last collection of essays. And I have just been reading them recently. Um, it actually comes out on Tuesday and looking at the ways in which he takes experience within an environment to ask questions about basically what it is to be a person, right? And therefore, what are our obligations to things like the kinds of ancestors that we're going to be? Um, what are the questions you actually have to answer yourself to come up with kind of morally appropriate and compelling answers? <laughs> um, I think he does that remarkably well. 